We're in the book of 1 Samuel, and uh, we're really enjoying this as we prepare to study the kings. And now we are studying the first king of Israel, not God's choice, but man's choice. But yet God allowed that, God uh, served it up to them so that he might correct them. And tonight we're going to learn more about this first king, Saul. And uh, if you're here tonight and you want to grab a coffee or grab a snack, go ahead and get it quickly. But we're going to begin with prayer and launch right into the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this evening that we have this opportunity to sit with you, to, to pray to you, to hear from you, to study your Word. Lord, uh, in the day that we live uh, right now, there is so much going on around us. So many people are polarized because of the agenda of the media, the agenda of different individuals who are putting themselves first, not putting you first. Lord, uh, sometimes what seems to be right for the people is the worst thing for the people. And only you know the difference. And so, Lord, tonight we appeal to you to reveal to us from your truth how we can be righteous in your eyes. Not in man's eyes, but in your eyes. How we can live our lives in such a way as to bring honor and glory to your name and your name alone. You don't share your glory. That's very clear in Scripture. And so tonight, Lord, teach us. Allow us to grow as we study these wonderful stories in the Old Testament that, that depict real life that fits even today. And we give you all the praise and glory for the work that the Spirit is going to do in our hearts tonight. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Well, tonight we uh, turn to chapter 13. We're going to be studying about King Saul. And, and uh, up to this point in time, Saul has, uh, he started out very humble. He started out broken, in a sense. Uh, in his first battle... As king, he ended up giving God all the glory for the victory. And the people rallied behind him, and Samuel rallied behind him, and they had a huge uh, celebration together. And all of Israel saw Saul as king. Saw Saul as king. That's a tough one, you know, you got to watch that. And, uh, and things were going swimmingly. But uh, over time, uh, the the, 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 the Cracks in the character of Saul began to become evident. And uh, we begin to see a man who actually, here's a man who put himself ahead of the people. A man who wanted to be loved by people, so he, he actually uh, did the things that uh, would, would please them rather than please the Lord. And this becomes so evident tonight in our study. And I... I pray that we not just keep our eyes on the, the narrative and only think about these things as it relates to Saul. I pray that somehow God by His Spirit will bring these issues that Saul had in his life, He would bring them forward into our lives, that we would see how if we're not careful, we too can become focused on people, focused on a, a self-identity rather than a God-identity. And so, let's get started. Verse 1, 
Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Let's stop right there. We're not even going to get through uh, to verse 2 here. Um, this is likely a scribal error. What you're looking at is a scribal error in the Bible. It does not mean that the Bible is fallible or that the Bible is now with error uh, because we're talking about uh, things that are insignificant. We're talking about numbers of years. And uh, so if I can just take a moment and share with you, when it says Saul lived for one year and then became king, the actual text in the Masoretic text doesn't say that. What we're reading is the scholars' attempt to fill in the blanks with other data that we have in the Bible and other sources outside of the Bible, like Josephus, a historian, what he had written. In the Masoretic text, it simply reads, Saul was the son of, and then it says, years when he became king, and he reigned, he reigned two years over Israel. So the Masoretic text, by the way, is the Hebrew of the Old Testament based on the Mazorah, okay? That's the Hebrew textual tradition of the Jewish scholars known as the Masoretes. They were the ones who really developed the tradition of the Hebrews based on the Old Testament text. Uh, they were a group of rabbis who made it their special work to correct any faults that had crept into the text of the Old Testament during the Babylonian captivity. If you remember Israel being hauled off, uh, or Judah being hauled off for 70 years. And, uh, and so the whole idea of the Babylonians was to completely erase their memory of being Jewish, erase the Jewish tradition. They separated moms and dads. They separated children from the parents. They gave them new names. You know, when we read in, this, in the Old Testament, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, those are not the Hebrew names. Those are names that were given to these men, these young men. And so we see that uh, in that period of time, Israel literally, or uh, Judah, lost their identity in God. Now, they didn't forget God, especially the leaders that God, the remnant in, in Babylon, and as they were released, they went back to Jerusalem. They rebuilt the walls. Nehemiah did that. Uh, Ezra, the scribe, was able to stand before the people because they found the scriptures, the Old Testament scrolls. And he stood and he, and he read to the people. And the Bible says that from sunup until noon, uh, they stood and listened as he read the Old Testament. It had been so long since they had read from the Old Testament scroll. And so here he is teaching them, and they're just hanging on every word. But in the, in the process of the scribe transferring from one document to another, letter for letter, the, the original text, there were times where uh, uh, spelling errors occurred, grammatical errors occurred, but when we say that the Bible is infallible and inerrant in its original text, we mean that. Uh, the only errors that they have found, especially after finding the Dead Sea Scrolls and finding whole uh, books of the Bible, uh, they discovered that only from what we had 
and then the Dead Sea Scrolls were like 900 years prior. And people thought, okay, over that 900-year period, I bet the Bible really changed. And that's what the, liter the, the liberal uh, scholars, the liberal Christians said. Oh, it's, you know, it's passed down hundreds of years, therefore the text has changed. They found that it was 99% accurate. And where there was inaccuracy, it had to do with spelling and grammar. Well, this is one of those instances where something was left out, a number was left out regarding Saul's age, regarding when he became king, whatever. Uh, and so some guys have tried to fill it in, and they've tried to come up with what they think it actually says. I don't think we can do that. I know that uh, if you read, for example... We can take other data and read it, like Acts chapter, write it down, Acts 13, 21. The apostle Paul was preaching in Antioch, and Paul said, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So he was king for 40 years. We learn that from what Paul shared with us. Uh, some translations take, though, this text in 1 Samuel 13, 1, and they, they, they kind of try to fill in the blanks. Like the New American Standard Bible says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign and, his reign, and he reigned for 42 years over Israel. So that would have made him 72 years old when he stopped reigning over Israel. The NIV said Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. So there's different takes. The ESV chooses not to add in there what's not there. They, they take a, a, a very conservative approach to that. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he breaks down Saul's 40 years as king uh, in two divisions, 18 years where he was king while Samuel lived, and then 22 years after Samuel passed on. And so anyway, it's probably a pretty good guess to say that Saul was king until about 70 and that he reigned for about 40 years. And it started when he was around 30. Something else that I'm going to share with you right now before we get to the next verse in the next couple of verses, where it talks for the first time about Saul's son, Jonathan. If you know, notice last chapter, Saul's just a new king. He's just getting started. He had his first victory, you know, and all. And now the next chapter, it talks about his son going out in battle. And so you wonder what went when, did, when was Jonathan born? And if he's going out to battle, he's now got to be older. Uh, that's true. We don't know when Jonathan was born in the process because we don't know uh, how old uh, for sure Saul was when he became king or when he had Jonathan. We don't know. So there's a lot of things. One thing that I think we're wrong in, in, in assuming, and most of us have assumed this, only because it's been given to us this way. That somehow Jonathan and David, because they had this brotherly love for one another, this close kinship, friendship, that somehow they were close in age. They were not. Jonathan would have been about at least 11 years older than David. And so uh, we, we do know that much, that they were not the exact identical age. And, uh, and of course, long after Jonathan is gone, you know, Jonathan dies... And, uh, and interestingly, uh, David continues to remember that friendship. And, of course, he offers help 
to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was uh, crippled at birth. And uh, as he was escaping uh, with the, the midwife, she dropped him, and it crippled him. And when David, after becoming king, he said, where are, the, where are Saul's family members? And, and, and Saul had, had completely gone beyond what God asked him to do, and he was trying to wipe out a particular people group. And uh, God led David in prayer to go to the leader of that people group and say, hey, what can we do to try and make right what we did that was wrong under Saul's leadership? And the king said, we want seven of Saul's family members, his men of his family. We want them. And so David honored that. But it says he would not allow Mephibosheth to be one of those. Mephibosheth was a cripple. So Mephibosheth, in terms of societal living, would have been seen as a weaker. If you're going to give somebody over to the enemy, give the weaker ones. But David wouldn't do it. And he protected Mephibosheth. In fact, he blessed Mephibosheth greatly. Try to say Mephibosheth three times without... Okay, so we're kind of carrying on here about uh, the relationship there, but also it's really more about this verse that there are things in the Scripture where it doesn't completely fill in the blanks. And where God doesn't fill in the blanks for us for whatever reason, we're not supposed to try to fill them in as if we know what we're talking about. We can make conjecture, we can say that's plausible, but let's not try to make black and white what's gray. And this is a gray, this is a gray thing. And again, it has nothing to do with doctrine, it has nothing to do with biblical truth, it's simply recording you know, chronological issues here. And so let's just keep moving on. So verse two, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So Saul assembles an army of just 3,000, and 2,000 with him, and a thousand with uh, his son, uh, Jonathan. And the Philistines heard of it. And so what's interesting, the rest of the people he sent home, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and they heard of it. So Jonathan goes out, and with his thousand, he takes out a garrison of Philistines. And Saul, after hearing of it, and the Philistines hearing of it, and all the Israelites hearing of it, Saul blows the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So this is the, let's just take this in steps here, what we just read. This is the first mention again of Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan was a, a remarkable military leader. He repeatedly demonstrated the ability to lead successful military campaigns. But in this particular battle, while Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines at, Ge at Geba, he really only awakened the Philistines. They, you know, they're a lot more powerful than Israel. Their armies, like, uh, you know, a thousand times bigger, you know. Uh, and so when he took out the garrison, he just basically uh, stubbed the toe of, of the Philistine army. 
and it just made them notice something going on. And, uh, but it was significant, spiritually speaking, and I want to explain that to you. Up to this point in time, Israel had enjoyed a peaceful uh, relationship with the Philistines. But here's what the relationship looked like. Philistines, Israel. They were under the Philistines. They were subjugated to the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines, of course, we studied them earlier and learned that they actually came into that promised land from an island off of Greece. And they were a seafaring people. They were a trading people by sea. and They understood. They were connected to the Greeks because they had relationship. And they learned from the Greeks about military strategy and warfare. They also learned from the Greeks about iron making, how to create weapons and tools with iron. So when they came into the land of the Hebrews, they came with a greater understanding, a skill set for uh, iron, using iron in, in, in warfare, and also understanding uh, how to make trades with Greece. And they, just, they were just more advanced. Uh, their, their, their military strategy was a lot more uh, sound than what Israel knew because Israel, quite honestly, was just a bunch of farmers. These are agrarian people. They, they're, not, uh, they're not warriors. Uh, their weapons are, you know, hoes and, and, and rakes. And so, so in that relationship, they got along because uh, Israel took the weaker position and stayed in that position. They stayed under the Philistines. And so now you have Jonathan who riles them up. Jonathan is making a statement. He's saying, we will not be uh, under the Philistines any longer. We refuse to bow to the Philistines. Now, I believe, and I think Scripture bears witness, that this was God who raised up in Jonathan this desire. And God was the one who was ready now under this king and under his leadership to raise Israel back up and to handle, to de totally defeat the Philistines. Uh, so this did rile up the Philistines. Now Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, the Scripture says. So as soon as Israel showed boldness and courage against their superior rivals, the posture of the Philistines changed towards Israel. Now, how true is that to life? I want you to think about this. Paul made it clear in Ephesians 6.12, write it down, Ephesians 6.12, that our true enemy is the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yet as long as you and I stay in a weakened state and remain subject to the principalities and the powers of this world, to the world systems that are at play right now in history, if we'll just stay, stay subject to them, then our spiritual enemies have the same attitude as the Philistines toward Israel. They just let us exist. Yeah, we're fine. In fact, Israel would even bring their tools, their gardening tools, over to the Philistines to have them sharpened. And the Philistines would charge them to have their tools sharpened. And it's just like us today. As long as we don't put up a fight against uh, what is wrong as long as we don't stand on truth and righteousness, as long as we just kind of go with the flow of what's happening, then, then the enemy, Satan, is like, hey, you're okay with me. 
I have no problem with you because you're under me. You're not standing up against me. It's like the old, but see, the old World War II pilots, they said, we knew we were over the target because we started getting flack. We knew we were getting close to the target. We knew we could do some damage. And the enemy knew it. And so they started sending up the flak to try to take out our bombers, take out our planes. That's the life of a Christian, is to stand for truth in every age, in every culture. Cancel culture means nothing Amen. to God. We are not to bow in fear of man. We're to stand for God and for righteousness all the time. And it will cost us something. We'll take the flack. We want the enemy. It's an indictment against a Christian for Satan not to come after you. We want the enemy to notice that we're here. Not because we're trying to pick a fight with Satan. He's not the focus. Righteousness is our focus. He just gets in the way of what we're trying to do. And the and Bible says, if when he gets in the way, resist him and he'll flee from you. You don't have to spend all your time fighting Satan and fighting demons. I'm not saying they're not real. They're real. But a lot of Christians, they get caught up in this demon behind every bush and everything's a demon. And the reality is that's, a, that's another tactic of the enemy. Pulling us off of the point that we live for righteousness, that we focus on the things that are right according to the word of God. And when we see the world going in another direction, we speak to it lovingly, but we speak. The scripture in the New Testament, Paul, when he gave a charge to Timothy, he gave a charge. And guess what he told Timothy he ought to be about as a pastor, as a leader? What did he say, Timothy, I want you to focus on these things? It wasn't things. There was no plural to it. You know what Paul told Timothy? Preach the word. And then he talked about what it meant to preach the word. He said, you rebuke. You correct, you encourage, but all of it is in the Word. Be a shepherd of God. A shepherd of God does two things and only focuses on two things. One, I'm going to protect the flock of God by the Word of God, and I'm going to feed the flock of God by the Word of God. In the early church, the disciples were approached because the, the, the Grecian widows the Hellenistic Jews, those who were Jewish, but they had been in the influence of the Greek culture. And so they had come to Jerusalem to worship. The church breaks out, you know, in Jerusalem. Instead of going back home, they stay. And now the church has all these people that have been added to the number, and they're trying to feed them and take care of the widows. And these men came to the, the apostles because they said, look, the, the, the Hellenistic Jews, the widows, they're not getting the same measure of food that the Jewish women here in Jerusalem are getting. It's not fair. And they wanted the apostles to do something about it. And the apostles uh, responded, uh, let's appoint seven among you who are spirit-filled, seven men who only represent God and want what God wants more than what man wants. Let them distribute the bread equally. But we, the apostles, those who are called to be spirit, we must be given to prayer and the ministry of the word. If more pastors spent more time today in the word of God, 
studying the Word of God, less time trying to be everything for everybody. I knew of a pastor who he did everything for his people. And when he uh, uh, was no longer in that church, the people praised him years later. Oh, he was wonderful. Oh, there was nobody like him. But you know why they loved him? Because he did whatever they needed. He was the guy that on Saturday went over to somebody's house to change their alternator. He didn't allow the other men. He didn't say, let's raise up men who can do this. He did it. I don't know his heart, but I can tell you this. It's easy to be intoxicated by the praises of man. And so now you find your ministry is all about just pleasing people and doing things for people because you need that admiration back. And I think that that's a, that's a temptation that every pastor has to face off to. We should always shepherd the flock well. We should lovingly feed and lovingly protect, but not at the expense of preaching the Word of God. We are supposed to stand. The enemy ought to notice when we preach. The enemy ought to tremble when we speak the Word of God over people. The enemy ought to flee because we know the Word. We know the truth. He can't pull one over on us. See, we should make a difference in this world. And every person, not just pastors, every person that's a believer, you have the same Holy Spirit living in you that that pastor has. That's why I said Sunday, and I've already had three people come out and say, Hey, Reverend, playing with me. I can't stand that title, you know. My brother used to say, Hey, Rev, hey, Rev. And I, I can't stand that title because um, it speaks of revering, holding someone in awe. There is no man that we should hold in awe. Only God. God does not share his glory with anybody. Keep our hearts in the right place. You don't want a pastor who does everything for you. You want a pastor who points you back to the word and says, you can do it. God's given you the same Holy Spirit. Now rise up. Be a man. Be a woman of God. Let's go forward together. Let's, let's do great and mighty things for God. Let's shake up the hell with what we're doing on earth. Amen. That's what we want. That's what we need. That's what God wants for us. Very important that we, like Jonathan, not just go with the flow. Jonathan took out a garrison. He was making that statement. It's like a fish in the stream, you know. I love, my parents lived up in Carolina, and we used to go up there when I was a kid. Every summer we'd go for a couple weeks and spend time in Carolina. And I used to love to go fishing in the streams up there, you know, the trout fishing, fly fishing. And, uh, but, you know, here's the thing I noticed about uh, trout in the river. I've never seen a trout go with the current. I've never seen a trout just going with the current down the stream, ever. They spend their entire life fighting against the current. I've seen them go up against the current, go forward into the current, I've seen them swim down the current. I've seen them swim across the current. I've never seen a trout float because that's a dead trout. And my fear is there's a lot of dead Christians. We're not fighting anything. We're just going along. And the world's okay with you. And Satan's okay with you. God, help us not to be that people. 
Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. By the way, archaeologists have found this Philistine fortress at Geba. And what they discovered, that there were different... Uh, uh, they discovered, first of all, that Saul had literally... that they had wiped out that garrison. And then they found Saul's uh, palace that he built on that site. So, interesting. So, that, I love... I love when, when modern science catches up with the Bible. <laughs> Verse 3, the latter part, And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. So Jonathan slew the Philistines. Saul blew the trumpet. One slew, one blew. Saul is taking credit for his son's victory. And really, when I say that, it's God's victory. If you ask Jonathan... Who gave the victory? He wouldn't say me. He would say God gave us that victory. But Saul's taking credit for the victory. And instead of giving credit to God who had lavished on him, think about this, how God lavished grace and mercy and gifts on Saul as he became king. How can you turn around knowing that God gave you everything? God put the kingdom in your hand. God turned you into a... How can you take credit for anything? I mean, just last chapter, Saul's giving credit to God. Now he's not. And this is the character flaw in Saul. How should it be for someone who has been richly blessed of God? We should be so humble. We should be so broken, right, in our spirit, knowing if God had not rescued me, if God had not graciously saved me, if God had not shown up, if God had not called, you know, people say, well, you know, I remember when I found the Lord. You never found the Lord. <laughs> Let me just set you right theologically. Honestly, no man has ever found the Lord. The scripture says, before a man can come to the Lord, the spirit has to draw him first. You say, well, I'm the one that put faith in God. No, it wasn't your faith. You, look, the Bible says God's given every man a measure of faith. How big of a measure? Enough that if you'll use it, you can believe in God. Everything's God's. Well, I'm the one that, you know, I've amassed this, this empire. I've done this. I've done that. I'm well respected in the community. I'm a, people tell me that I'm one of the smartest men they know. All of that is God's work. The brain that you have, God gave you that. You have nothing. All you are is wretched, blind, and pitiful. That's what Jesus said. So Jonathan slew the Philistines. Saul blew the trumpet. We should always give glory to God. The more fruit that we bear, the more it should drive us to our knees in thanksgiving to God. You ever notice the limb on a tree that bears the most fruit hangs the lowest. The limb that bears the most fruit isn't the one that's highest, it's lowest. If we could just be like nature, the way God created it, and bow down before him because of all that he's doing. But see, such was not the case with Saul. His insecurity wouldn't allow him, any of his associates, even his own son, wouldn't allow him to give them the credit 
for what God had done. Saul drank in the praises of men like a parched and thirsty man gets a drink of water. He needed it because his ego needed it. His desire, his insecurities needed it. I need to be praised. I need the kudos of man. I need the affirmation because his identity was not found in God. It was found in himself and what people said about him. What I've learned about that over the years is I'll never be as good as man says that I am. Ever. If a man gives you great praise, you ain't that good. And you should just admit that. And I'll never be as bad as man says that I am. See, I want to receive what God says about me. That's what matters, right? Verse 5, and the Philistines mustered to fight the, with Israel. They, look, look what the Philistines bring now. Phil, uh, Jonathan takes out a garrison. Now 30,000 chariots and 600 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Wow. So somebody shook the hornet's nest. Jonathan did. And Jonathan's shaking it and going, this is going to be awesome! You know, and everybody else is running for the caves. They're running for the cistern, you know. Jump in the cistern, hide out. Not, not Jonathan. Man of faith. And so, now, interesting here, uh, it says 30,000 chariots. Some scholars believe that that too is a scribal error. That it would be more like 3,000, not 30,000. I don't know that I agree with them. It says 30,000, and I don't think the Bible has a whole lot of scribal errors in it. But, but the reason I say that I don't think it's, a, it's an error is because look what it says below that. It says uh, troops, the troop size, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Wow. That's a big army when you're compared to the sand on the seashore. And it just, it doesn't even give a number. It just says multitudes. So I tend to believe that the Bible's accurate here. There were 30,000 troops. And yet Jonathan was bold enough to launch the initial attack against the Philistines and, uh, and get this party started. But the men, no. They hid in, the, in fear anywhere they could. Caves, bushes, under rocks, holes, pits, wherever. Some even fled across the Jordan River. That's a sad state of Israel to leave the promised land, to leave where you came in from because you're fearful of man, not God. When God said before they entered in to Moses and then later to Joshua, you will take the land. I will go before you. I will clear the land out for you. And God did to the degree that Israel allowed God. They had to trust him. They had to walk with him. And then, of course, after a while, after taking out a few, then they said, well, we can live with the rest of them. Let's let them stay here in the land, and we'll even make them our servants and whatever. There's the brilliance of man, the futility of man. Now, remember, it wasn't too long ago that they were crying, we need a king, we want to be like other nations. A king would solve all of our problems. Now they have a king, 
and their problem in front of them is bigger than ever. Getting a king didn't change the problem issue. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling in verse 7. His position as king was confirmed at Gilgal. Now he's still there many months later. He might be reliving his glorious inauguration, thinking it's going to always be like this, you know, this wonderful encounter with people, and people are going to love me and all that. Well, now all of a sudden, boy, it's a lot different. The song has changed, man. And Saul sees the people running, and Saul begins to think a little bit differently too. Look what it says in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. So let me just give you the picture here. Excuse me. Here's the picture. So Saul... Uh, is going to go up against the Philistines. And Samuel gave him very clear instructions. I want you to wait seven days. I will show up, and then we will give God a burnt offering first before you go to battle. What's not said in that, but that is absolutely true, because we saw the last time they went to battle, Samuel is, is bringing to Saul the battle plan. This is going to be God's battle. This is a mighty army that, that Israel is going up against. And so he's got to wait for Samuel. Well, I believe God allowed Samuel to come later than the seven days because God was testing Saul. Will Saul remain faithful and obedient to what Samuel said, the priest said to him? Or will he just go ahead and take matters in his own hands? And so that's exactly the current crisis that they're facing. And uh, I'm sure that every day that went by felt like a week, not a day, okay? And the Philistines were assembling this huge army. Saul probably thought that once they were organized, they would be much harder to beat. So Saul starts reasoning in his own mind why he needs to become the priest for the people. Samuel told him to wait. He's not going to wait. You can just imagine that early in the part of the week before Samuel showed up when he still thought Samuel would be there after seven day, or on the seventh day. He probably had a Braveheart experience and stood up there, you know, like William Wallace and gave a big pep talk to the army, you know. This is going to be awesome. They've come up against us with chariots and swords, but God's on our side and the people oh, going crazy. And, and, and God is sending Samuel and Samuel's going to come and we're going we're gonna to have a victory because we're going to make a burnt offering to God. And they're, whoo! And that's what he said early in the week. But now the weekend. And now we're getting to the end of that seven days. And he sees the people fleeing. He had 3,000. But most of the 3,000 have fled. He also sees the army of the enemy now they position themselves for battle. There's no Samuel in sight. So here's where we can enter into sin thinking what we're doing is right, and there is no right to sin. No matter how many ways you try to share and reason and give excuse, there is no good excuse for sin. And so it doesn't play out according to the way God intended because, because 
Saul abandon God's plan. So Saul said, verse 9, bring the burnt offering to me, here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. That's a clear, sinful act. Saul is not a priest. He has not presented himself to prepare and to, to offer up the burnt offering. He has blood on his hands. A priest does not have blood on his hands. If you remember David later, David said to the Lord, I live in a palace and you live in a tent. I want to build you a palace, Lord. I'm just, I want to build that for you. And the Lord said, I really love your heart. In fact, Nathan told him, yeah, go build it. And God got Nathan aside. Hey, whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean go build it? I didn't say go build it. He had to go back and say to David, David, you can't build it because there's blood on your hands. You've, you've done battle for the Lord. So you won't be the one building it. And here is Saul literally offering up the priestly offering. Uh, history shows how dangerous it is to combine religious and civic authority, and God would not allow the kings of Israel to be priests, nor would He put up with priests who became kings. In 2 Chronicles 26, King Uzziah tried to do the work of the priest, and God struck him with leprosy. You don't play around with the role that God has given others. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Some scholars think that Samuel showed up within an hour of the offering going up. Again, it was all a test for Saul. God knew the appointed time for Samuel to show up, and it didn't matter if that would have been five days late. Don't you think God could take out the, the Philistines with however many men were left? If God could take listen, God reduced Gideon's army from 32,000 down to 300, and they slaughtered the enemy. So God's not a bit worried about the battle. But see, Saul took his eyes off God. He put his eyes on the battle. He put his eyes on the battlefield. He put his eyes on his own wisdom and what he could do. And I want people to be able to praise me, so I've got to come up with a better plan because people are fleeing. So Saul went out to meet Samuel. Look at this. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, first words out of his mouth, what have you done? You think, how did, how did he know that? You know how. The Lord revealed to Samuel that Saul failed the test. Plus, he probably smelled the burnt offering still floating around in the air. You know? He could smell that fat burning. What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were... Now look, see, look here. First words out of his mouth, an excuse. When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So, look at this, I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Saul decided to perform the sacrifice not more than an hour after, and here he is making excuses to the man of God, not realizing that it was a test, and he failed miserably. So, literally, the Hebrew says that Saul wanted, when he came out, and it says here in the text, it says he came out to meet and greet him. Notice how it says that, meet and greet. Why would it go to that extent? Because in the original language, it, it's the same words used 
for a priest who would bless someone. Samuel, or Saul, became the priest in offering the, the sacrifice. Now he's going to go out and meet the man of God and bless him. The king's going to bless the priest when it's the priest and the prophet who give the blessing, not the king. Talk about just overreach. Talk about ego. Talk about pride. So Saul now sees himself as the priest. And Saul, like a, he's, he's like a child who gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He turns to his mommy and says, Mama, let's pray. <laughs> Can't you just see a child get caught? What do I do? Mama, let's just pray. Let's pray about this. That's what he's doing. He's like a kid. Samuel says, what have you done? See, Samuel knew. God had revealed to him. And Saul's response is classic. Excuse-making at the worst because he failed to trust God. There, what, what, what excuse can you give for not trusting God? Let's just get our eyes off of Saul for a minute. Let's just go ahead and get our, in our own backyard. Let's look at the junk in our own trunk. What excuse is going to stand up against the fact that you did not trust the Lord? You really think God is going to, oh, oh, I didn't think of that. You're right. Boy, I'm glad you didn't follow me. I'm glad you were able to see through my failure. That's never happened. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. You get the point? Pride is at the root of Saul's disobedience. It's nothing but a bunch of I, me's, and myselves. Saul's saying, in, a, in essence, I had to do something to impress the people and gain back their support. But if Saul had obeyed the Lord, don't you think the people would have rallied under God's leadership? You know, some people probably wouldn't have. Some people, when they saw Saul do what he did, they're probably going, wow, what a leader. He's a man of action. He's the guy we want to follow. Because, see, their focus isn't on the Lord either. They're the ones that were yelling out, we need a king. But most people, when God shows up, believe me, there's a big difference between what you do and what God does. And they'll see it. He could have had a positive response in the polling data, but if God is not with him, it doesn't matter how many people like what you did. Samuel, it was really your fault. If you came earlier, I wouldn't have done this. But Saul obeyed and trusted God, God would have taken care of Samuel. And it didn't matter when Samuel showed up. God would have done his work. Well, we really needed God's help against the Philistines, and we needed it now. So I had to, I had to do it. I forced myself to do it. But if Saul would have obeyed and trusted God, the Lord would have taken care of the Philistines. Saul could have made supplication to the Lord in any number of ways without ever picking up a stick and offering an offering to the Lord by fire. 
He could have just cried out for the whole nation, Lord, we need your help. Lord, get Samuel here. We're going to wait. We're not going to jump ahead. You must have a different plan. He could have led the people to focus on God and that God's still going to bring victory. He didn't do it. He was a lousy leader. I had to do it. It just seemed like the right thing to do. I couldn't wait any longer. Almost like, man, there was just no way there's any other option that would work. What an arrogance to think that God could be cornered in something and couldn't get out unless you bail God out. The whole manner of Saul's explanation makes it clear that this was no misunderstanding. He didn't say to Samuel, did I do something wrong? When Samuel said, what have you done? You know what? He knew exactly what he was going to say before Samuel showed up. He already had his excuses laid out. And maybe we do too. Maybe we do too. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. If you had only obeyed the Lord and just waited, it didn't matter how long God would have you wait. Just be faithful. Be God's man. Remain faithful to his command. If you had done that, your family would sit on the throne forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Boy, that's a wake-up call. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Interesting, he has commanded another man to be what? King over the people? Prince. What's the prince? He's under the king. Who's the king? God. David had a heart after God. The right order. You have done foolishly. Samuel said. That is a stronger phrase than what it reads in English. Samuel did not mean Saul was unintelligent or acted silly, you know, in what he did. He's actually saying the Bible speaks of a fool as someone who is lacking moral and spiritual integrity. That's a fool. Who doesn't follow the command of God. That's a fool. A fool is somebody who says in their heart, there is no God. Well, Saul knew there was a God, but in the moment, he acted like there was no God. You're a fool. You've acted foolishly. And look what he said after he said, you've acted foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. That's why you're a fool. You didn't follow the word of God. You drifted from the word of God. Those of you watching by live stream, those of us here tonight, this is so important in this day that we're living. This is not the time to cater to, kowtow to all the different people, groups, and world belief systems that are out there. This is the time when God's true people simply focus in on the commands of the Lord. What is the Lord telling me to do? What does the scripture teach me to do? This is what I will do. I'm not going to do anything else. I don't care what they say. I'm going, to, I'm going to obey God. If you don't do it, you're foolish. You're foolish. Verse 13, For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Shall not continue. You know, we would have expected, listening to that, that Saul would have removed him, or Samuel would have removed him immediately. He didn't. 
In fact, Saul served as king as many years as David did, 40 years. By the way, the word, for, many kings serve 40 years. Now, either that's true, they all serve 40 years, literally, or, as some scholars have shown, that in Hebrew, 40 is a general term, speaking of a long time, and it doesn't mean the number 40. Now, I'm going to take it literally, 40 years. He, God didn't remove him right away, but yet, what do you think? After he said this, do you think that things were different for the rest of his term? You better believe it, because the end was certain. God said it, and it's going to happen. But basically, you know, if, you, if you're the king, what that means in a monarchy is that your family sits on the throne after you, your family. And Samuel's saying, your family's not going to follow you on the throne. Your, 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 your family will never see the throne. You're no longer going to see your name on the throne. That is a huge shift for Saul. And this is exactly what God did. We're going to see it as we go forward. Verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So I'll, I'll, this, this is very important that we get this. Although God has rejected Saul as king, God has not rejected his people. He has not rejected his people. He would still raise up a king, a man after his own heart, for his people. Another reason why we should be so broken and thankful before God, because we mess up constantly, and yet God still loves us. The Bible says throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, that his love never changes. That just blows my mind. That God's love is the same always. When Micah, the minor prophet, said, Who is a God like you that forgives sin? That literally, he said, that takes our sins and puts them under our feet. He uses the word mortify. He puts to death our sins. Who is a God like that? How, knowing that, how can we not remain humble and broken in our service to the king? You know, I, I watch uh, the millennials today, and I'm listening, and I'm trying to learn and understand what they're really about. And, you know, the general sense is that, you know, they, they, they are absolutely not in the camp of those who have great wealth and who use their wealth for themselves. They hate that. They despise that. And so what they're taught in, this, in the university is we ought to distribute that wealth to everybody. Well, i got to tell you, biblically, biblically, um, the Bible teaches stewardship. The Bible doesn't teach ownership. Uh, I believe that Every man ought to have the right to choose how he uses the resource that he has accumulated with his own hands, okay? I believe you have the right. But I can tell you, if you're a Christian, you wouldn't be the guy who would only think of yourself and give more and more to yourself and never bless others. 
The Bible says that you're not called to be an owner. That's an owner. An owner says, it's mine, I own it, I do what I want, and it's, I don't have to share it with anybody, it's mine. Okay, the, while, while, while our economy allows that, and I'm glad it does, I'm glad it gives the, the choice, but that's not Bible. Bible says you're not called to be an owner. You're called to be a steward of God's things. So even if God gives you great wealth, you're called to think of others. You're called to use God's resource that He's blessed you with, giving you the mind, the entrepreneur spirit to do what you did. God gave you that, and now He wants you to be a good steward of the things He's given so that you're not just about yourself. If they only could hear that, but see, they're, they're, they go from this pendulum, a guy who has it all and only keeps it for himself, and the professors in the university say, and they need to give it all away. We need to take it from them. Reparations for everybody in this. And we need to just, everybody ought to get the equal amount. So they go over here to socialism and communism. From here to here, God says, no. Every man has a choice, and one day he's going to answer for the choices he made. If he chose to live as an owner, He'll answer for that. But I'm calling Christians who have wealth and calling every Christian. If you're poor, you're to be a steward because you still have energy, right? If you're poor, you still have energy. You still have time. You still have talents. You still have a testimony. Be a good steward of it. Be a good steward of it. That's not Saul. Saul only thinks of himself. And this is why God raised up David, a man who has a heart after me. David would only live to fulfill God's purpose and plan. The contrast between Saul and David is crystal clear. Saul was a man after Israel's heart. He was all about image, prestige, and the things men look at, where David was a man after God's heart. God raised up a man after his own heart because of his great love for Israel. What's best for Israel isn't what's what Israel chose. So God chose for her, okay, because he loved Israel. So he chose someone who wasn't going to love Israel out of a selfish love. He wasn't going to choose somebody who would love Israel because he needed Israel to love him back. He chose a man who loved God and would only want to return to God what God gave him for Israel. That's the kind of a man that David was. Being a man after God's own heart is the key to spiritual leadership. Let's just go ahead and break it down. Let's talk about your home. I, I believe absolutely that God has given headship, spiritual headship, to the man in the home and in the church. Not in the world, not a, you know, government's different, all that. But in the home and in the church, you say, well, why just the home and church? Because those two, marriage is a picture of Christ in his relationship with the church. That's what marriage is. Paul said that's the mystery of marriage. It's a picture of Jesus and his relationship with the church. Jesus was not the bride. Jesus was the groom. The church is the bride. And a husband is called to be a spiritual leader in the home. That doesn't mean lording over. That doesn't mean commanding. That if you do that, you're just like that rich guy who just keeps it for himself. No, you're to be a good steward as a spiritual head of the home. And that's the picture that God has drawn for us. 
That's how we should live, in the home. And, and that's exactly what spiritual leadership is. It doesn't start as a pastor. It starts as a man in the home. And I don't ever make any decisions without my wife's input, always. We have long discussions, and sometimes uh, the decisions uh, that we make, she was right. And I went with what she said. The only difference between us in the home is that she won't answer to God for that. I will. Whatever decisions are made in the home, God's not going to call, Rini, how did you lead in the home? How did you lead Greg? When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, who sinned first? The man or the woman? The woman. Come on, ladies, you can admit, admit that. <laughs> Eve sinned first. When God showed up to confront them in their sin, did he say, Eve, where are you? This is, hey, this is before the fall. This is the way God intended in the very beginning. He called on Adam. Where are you, Adam? He addressed Adam first. And what did Adam say? Like Saul, she made me do it. <laughs> Lousy spiritual leadership, Adam. That same is true in the home. So spiritual leadership, even in the home level, we need to lead lovingly. A man after God's heart honors the Lord. Saul was more concerned with his will than God's will. David knew God's will was most important. Even when David didn't do God's will, he still knew God's will is, was more important. Even when he failed, but he still knew. All sin is a disregard of God. But David sinned more out of weakness. Saul sinned more out of disregard for God. A man after God's heart enthrones God as king. For Saul, Saul was king. For David, the Lord was king. Both David and Saul knew sacrifice before battle was important, but David thought it was important because it pleased and it honored God. It put before all the soldiers before battle who really is in control here and who really is worthy of our worship. It's God. That's not why Saul offered up the sacrifice. He offered up the sacrifice because he wanted to win the battle. He was only appealing to God like a genie in the bottle. If we offer the sacrifice, then you'll help us in the battle. He wasn't worshiping God in the offer. A man after God's heart has a soft, repentant heart. When Saul was confronted with his sin, he offered excuses. When David was confronted with his sin, he confessed his sin and repented. A man after God's heart loves other people. Saul became increasingly bitter against people, and he lived more and more unto himself. But David loved people. When David was down and out, as he was running from Saul, who was trying to kill him, David's men came to him from his family. 400 men showed up. In the Bible says they were in distress. 2 Samuel, uh, let's see, chapter 22. They were distressed when they found David hiding in a cave. And David said, come on in, stay with me. David encouraged them. He, the Bible says he encouraged them in the Lord. See, his heart was with the people, even while he was running for his life from Saul. The same can be said of a pastor or an elder or an elder team in a church in their relationship to the church. We have pastor elders who have a heart after self or we can have a pastor elder who has a heart after God. 
If his heart is after himself, he'll give people what they want to hear and cater to everything that they want done. Because his identity is wrapped up in the admiration that people offer. He's not a shepherd because he doesn't lead the flock. He follows the flock as a hired hand. That's the man who has not put God first. He's put himself ahead of God, and he uses people to feed himself every day. Why in the world would God ever call you as a shepherd to go to a people and follow the people you're supposed to lead? Shepherd is leadership. And the only way a true shepherd can lead is if he knows God is leading him. If the pastor has a heart after God, then he'll make sure to give people what God wants, not what people want. He will shepherd the flock in a way that pleases the Lord. And believe me, if he's pleasing the Lord, it will be what's right for the people. It'll be good for the people. God would never, through a shepherd, harm his people. That's not God. That God doesn't do that. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. He said, a good, a good shepherd will lay across the open of the pen at night so that the wolf cannot come in. He'll have to go over the shepherd to get to the sheep. That's a good shepherd. He said, he said the shepherd that when the wolf comes, gets up and runs and leaves the pen open for the wolves, that's a hired hand. Big difference. One is called. The other just sees it as a job. And when the job gets tough, I'm out of here. When you're a people pleaser, being popular and praised is what you feed on. It's where you find your sense of identity. Faithfulness to God and faithfulness to His Word takes a backseat to likability among people. You love the sheep because they prop you up. At the end of your life, here's what you think at the end of life. Man, I hope the people go down remembering me as their greatest pastor. That's what you're hoping at the end, that they'll just never forget me and my name will be praised because I was the best pastor they ever had. They live for that. When you're a God pleaser instead of a people pleaser, your identity is found in God alone. You're humbled that God would allow you to be a loving shepherd to one of his flocks. You love the sheep because he first loved you. Therefore, God comes first. He is your life, and shepherding is your calling. Your highest value is remaining true to God true to His Word, and lovingly feeding and protecting His sheep. At the end of your life, you don't say, man, I hope they remember me as the greatest pastor they ever had. You only think, Lord, I pray that you'll be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So the Lord found for Himself a man after His own heart. It's interesting where God found this man. Huh. Think about it. It wasn't even a man when he was found. He was a boy. God will go to any length to find the right heart. And usually it has nothing to do with looks. It has nothing to do with status. It has nothing to do with power. I, this is interesting to me, contemplating this today. If David had some, had some of our sin, then we can have his heart. I wrote that down in my notes. Some of us think that, well, I'm not a David. You know, I never committed sins like that. Um, you've all sinned. I've sinned. We're all sinners. And you say, well, then, 
but I'm still, I don't have a heart like David for God. Why not? Do you really think that you can sin like David but not have a heart like David for God? That God would only let you have sin like David? He wouldn't let you have a heart after Him? Of course He'll give you that heart. If you yield by the Holy Spirit to Him, And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him. He's all about the numbers. About 600 men were left out of 3,000. And Saul and Jonathan had his, uh, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and raiders came out of the camp at the Philistines in three companies. They had so many men, they could just send them out in, in groups. One company turned down towards uh, Ophrah to the land of Shaul. Another company turned uh, toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Z uh, Zeboam toward the wilderness. Earlier, again, Saul was thinking, man, if I don't go out and do something, we're not going to have any men left to fight. Again, Gideon started with 32,000, ended up with 300. Saul's got 600. And he, listen, he knows the story of Gideon. He has no excuse for doing what he did. According to 1 Samuel 13, 5, the Philistines already had a huge army, easily outmatching Saul's 3,000. But that was nothing to the Lord. Amen? Verse 19, Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. As we learned several chapters ago, you know, the Philistines have advanced weaponry with iron. Israel has nothing. In fact, they would go to the Philistines to sharpen their, <coughs> their farm tools and so what are they bringing to battle? Farm tools. I can imagine that when they would bring those farm tools to the Philistines to sharpen the axe and everything, they probably never sharpened them all that much for two reasons. One, because if they ever rose up against us, we don't want them to have sharp weapons. Number two, if I don't sharpen it too much, then he'll have to come back sooner <laughs> to have it sharpened again. You know, I'm just, that's not in the Bible. That's just me thinking about it, you know, <laughs> but Obviously, the point that, uh, of this text is it was such a lopsided battle. And uh, we're going to stop there. We're not going to get into the battle till next week. Okay. Well, actually, next, next week, Deb, are we still on? Or is that? Yes, we are. Okay, that's right. Um, I want to share with you something as we close tonight, um, something I'm very excited about. And I know that... Scott Walker's here. Scott's the chairman of our elder board, and we talked about it last night at our shepherds meeting with the elders.
Bill is an elder. He's here tonight. Um, we are very excited about the missions weekend that we have coming. Um, guys, I, I cannot say enough how much of a blessing this is going to be in the life of our church. From day one, we had five values that we held up. Five values. Two of them had to do with, well, first, worship God. Nobody but God. Secondly, we're going to be accurate uh, and committed to the Word of God. Thirdly, we're going to provide discipleship by being clear in doctrine. Fourthly, we are going to be a church that's given to uh, fellowship. We're going to fellowship. Boy, we, we have as a church. And even tonight, you know, coming early, and that's a, that's a high value here. It's a biblical value. And then lastly, we're going to be committed to the Great Commission. Amen. We're going to disciple, and we're going to go out and tell people about Jesus. This is a culmination. This, this missions weekend coming up. It's going to happen. Is it the sun, the weekend after Easter or two weekends after? One weekend. So the following weekend. This is kind of cool. We didn't plan this. Nobody can take credit for this. This is what the Lord did. So you have Palm Sunday, and we have the Good Friday service prior, you know, or that Friday before Easter. But Palm Sunday is about the cross. Easter is about what? Resurrection. The next weekend, go and tell the Great Commission. Isn't that cool? And let me just tell you, uh, we are so blessed with Marshall and Jessica Pennell who are leading our, our, our missions committee. Are there any members of the committee here tonight? Oh, wonderful. Listen, two of you, wonderful. Listen, uh, they have arranged for, I, I don't remember the names of the ministries or even the names of these men, but we've got the presidents of two national organizations that are significant in their ministry who are going to come. One's going to preach on Sunday morning to Sunday after Easter. The other's going to preach on Sunday night. We're going to actually have a Sunday morning service focused on the Great Commission. We're going to have a Sunday. They're going to talk about their missions, uh, what they're doing in their ministries. And, and then uh, Sunday night, the same thing, a different leader. And then on Monday night... We're going to come over here along with Sunday night, and we're going to have a special uh, speaker who's going to talk to us. The one, I do remember this, the ministry, uh, Vicki, help me if I'm wrong, but he was going to talk about uh, uh, the ministry that they have in Dominican Republic on the landfill, the people who are living on the landfill, and that ministry ministers to those people. So all three of these, we're going to make sure that there's pictures because we want our kids at an early age to have a love for the gospel, a love for seeing souls come to Christ, a love for missionaries and missionary work because I believe that for years to come, we're going to see God raise up missionaries out of this fellowship. God's going to do it. And so I'm asking you to be part of this, okay? I think Sunday night we're going to have a special dinner. Is that right? It's going to be here. It's going to be catered by uh, the folks at uh, Chive. Is that right? And it's going to be it's a free meal. It's, it's going to be a blessing. So there's no reason for us not to do all we can. We can squeeze 80 people in this room. And uh, we're going to try to do that on uh, that, that Sunday evening, Sunday morning. Don't, do not stay home 
uh, because I'm not preaching. This church is, that is such an insult to God. This church is not about Greg. This church is about the Lord's work. Amen? And so I'm, I'm asking you, please, be faithful. Those of you who are listening, be faithful to the Lord. And let's have an incredible three events, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, and then the follow, is it oh, before that, before that Easter Sunday, on Thursday night here, we're not going to do uh, Samuel. We're going to have a member of our church who has a heart for missions and is called to the mission field. A young man, Chris Bills, is going to come and he's going to be communicating with us on Thursday night before Easter Sunday. So I'm, I'm so pumped up and excited about all this. This is, this is good stuff. Amen? So I'm just telling you, I'm plenty of notice three or four weeks out. It's coming. And we want everybody here to be part of it, okay? Let's, uh, let's get ex- this, this is the greatest day to focus on missions uh, because, boy, it's needed everywhere around the globe and especially in America. All right, well, let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Oh, Lord, we each one of us have failed you so many times, yet you have continued to show steadfast love. The Bible says that you delight in unchanging love. We're not worthy of that. We don't deserve it. But you sent Jesus to die for us. You showed us grace and mercy. And so with humble hearts, with hearts of gratitude, we leave tonight desiring to take what we've learned and implement it, put it in our lives tomorrow. That this message tonight, these words from Scripture, they would change how we approach tomorrow, how we approach people, how we see people, how we lead in our homes and in our church. Thank you for your love, Father. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.